Okay. I am recording now as well. Are you smiling? Am I smiling? Yeah, are you smiling? Does it matter? Yeah, it makes a difference. Your voice sounds uh, softer, friendlier, more approachable. (laughs) Mm, Then I probably don't want to do that if it sounds anything like what you just did. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, San Diego, co-host. Two weeks in a row. Two weeks in a row. That's right. (laughs) We got two weeks in a row without any breaks or interruptions. Uh, That, uh, that of course, is my co-host, Cassidy Robinson from Las Vegas, Nevada. Yes. Yes, and today we have a show. We have a show for you today where we are going to be reviewing uh, It, Chapter 2. And at the end of the program, we're also going to review the documentary Jim and Andy, which was uh, it was, it was put on Netflix a couple years ago, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, like it. I think it might yeah. have been. Yeah, 2017. Um, anything new with you? What's going on? Yeah, actually, I have a fun story from Hawaii that I forgot to share with you last week. Um, And it's even movie-related. Whoa! Synergize! Great. Um, So we were... uh, Where we were staying had access to, like, a private lagoon. um, Because we Mm -hmm. were staying at this Disney resort. You mentioned that. Private private lagoon flex number two. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah. Um and while we were there, we were like just sort of floating out in the lagoon. And uh-huh. uh, my mother-in-law looks at this girl and she's this, like this little girl and she's like I'm sorry, this might be weird, but uh are you an actress? You look like you could be an actress. And your mother-in-law uh, said was, this to the little girl or the little girl said this to your mother-in-law? My mother-in-law said this to the little girl. Um, okay. She was there with her mom, so it like it wasn't weird. Uh, I mean, it was a little weird, but it wasn't, like, creepy. Okay. Um, anyway, the girl goes, actually, yes, I am. She's on some ABC or NBC show. That's how my mother-in-law recognized her. But okay. turns out she was the little girl from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that played opposite of Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, cool. Did you yeah, recognize it, her at all? I don't think I would, like, out of out of context. I, I No, I didn't until her mom started talking to her. And I was like, she does look, like, vaguely familiar. And uh-huh. then... I don't, I don't know how it came up, but somebody was like, yeah, she just had a movie come out, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think her mom said that. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, oh, oh, shit, yeah. <laughs> uh, you were, I, you know, I was like, you were awesome in that. You were uh, really good. Um, mm-hmm. American she was. Wife is the, yeah, 
Yeah, she's very good. Um, it's kind of a standout scene of the movie. Yeah, yeah, and the the girl, she was, uh, she like we, you know, we didn't want to be weird about it, and like for sure. Uh, but she, you could tell, like she was very flattered. Like mm-hmm. she's still young enough that she hasn't gotten super jaded about that it, kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so and I, actually, I that's that probably cool. like the perfect dynamic to fan out over somebody is if they're a kid, because <laughs> that's when they would most likely be into it. Well, when when they're a kid and when your mother-in-law is doing most of the talking. <laughs> right. And you're sharing a private lagoon together. Yeah, yeah. Um, and <laughs> apparently her dad uh, works for Disney and uh, helped create the character Olaf. So that's fun, too. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and so I... Shortly after this, you got in conversation with them, and you're doing a voice in the new Frozen. Yeah, actually. Uh, no, that last part's You're going to be one of the rock uh, trolls. It's actually pretty exciting. <laughs> uh, I mean, once she said she was in... Oh, man, that'd be... I'd be such a fucking good rock troll. <laughs> <laughs> I am a rock troll. Whatever we fucking do. We have no point in this movie. Blah, 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 dumb. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, obviously I wanted to ask her a thousand questions about, like, Quentin Tarantino. Sure. And Leonardo DiCaprio. And, and she said he was, like, amazing to work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's one of the best living actors of our generation, I think. Yeah. Uh, so that's pretty exciting. Yeah, so that was just a fun little anecdote that happened over my vacation. For sure. Yeah, that's that is fun. I'm surprised that wasn't the first thing you told me last week when you went over your trip. But, I mean, you know, things <laughs> slipped through the cracks. Well, and what's kind of funny is she was there for quite a few days. Mm-hmm. And her and her mom were just so, like, chill and nonchalant that it it wasn't weird at all. And we kept running into them. And we were just like, oh, hey, it's you guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, like, said bye to uh, my wife and, and my mother-in-law when they left and stuff. So it was, you know, they, she kind of turned into, like, a fun single-serve friend situation. Cool. Cool. Well, yeah. we look forward to uh, your new performance in Frozen 2. And uh, hopefully that relationship will blossom into a great uh, professional booster. <laughs> of course. All right, let's go ahead and from there, let's just go ahead and get into our Consume Obey. Uh, The segment in which we talk about the things we, uh, in media, that we are consuming at the moment. Um, Keith, do you have anything there? I'm going to flip it and reverse it, because I just provided all the content at the top of this pod. Uh, why don't you start us off with your Consumo Bay? Okay. Um, I actually kind of have a couple. Uh, I discovered a new podcast that I'm liking a lot. Um, it's called uh, Demo Listen, and it's exactly like what it sounds like. It's a podcast in which uh, a couple guys who are uh, kind of movers and shakers in sort of the punk hardcore scene they listen to new demos uh that are uh, submitted to them by you know various bands um some more famous than others uh some just starting out and putting stuff on Bandcamp, and they just give it a listen and give their honest response um 
And I, I think they kind of got the idea from Axe to Grind. They they do episodes like that every once in a while, but they kind of just focus on that specific aspect every episode. And uh, the main guy um, I kind of know from Twitter, uh, Gordon Gray, or Gray Gordon, rather. Um, <clears throat> he's kind of like a, uh, a meme generator in the punk world and makes a lot of funny uh, memes and uh, jokes online. Um, so I've known who he was for a while. Uh, but yeah, he's a great podcast personality as well. And his, his, uh, co-host goes on the best, like, angry, middle-aged rants, <laughs> um, unprompted. Uh, so yeah, I've been liking that. They have five episodes up now and I think they just got on iTunes. So that's when I started listening. Um, my the other thing I wanted to talk about uh, today we we're recording on Tuesday the eleventh, and uh, it was just put on the internet just a little bit ago, or that I just noticed that uh, singer songwriter Daniel Johnston uh, passed away. Oh and, yeah, uh, very sad. Yeah, kind of a bummer. I don't know if a ton of people know who he is. You probably it's one of those guys you've probably heard somebody do one of his songs, but you've never heard his version of it. Um, kind of mm. like Leonard Cohen in that way, but yeah, he was a guy. Which, he, by he, the way, we quick sidebar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw a picture of young Leonard Cohen. Uh, it's like one of his album covers. Looks yeah, just like Adam Sandler looks now. It's weird. <laughs> like I, that needs to happen. Uh, Adam the Adam Sandler, Sandler Leonard Cohen movie. Yeah, I mean that we would know be a Adam turn. Sandler can take a well. We know Adam Sandler can do serious work, and sure, he's usually better in that light he he can play guitar he's actually a musician right. uh i i i'm all for like writing and directing a fucking leonard cohen biopic starring <laughs> adam sandler go for anyway. it anyway uh back to daniel johnson yeah so he was like a, a lo-fi recording artist in the 80s he, he made a lot of his own stuff on tapes um and hung out in austin texas just handing out tapes on the street and eventually got into the right hands and he um you know, started getting his songs published professionally and, you know, toured and whatever. Uh, but he uh, went um, for real insane uh, towards the, you know, his end of his 20s, early 30s, and has been in and out of hospitals um, his entire life. And, you know, his parents have been taking care of him at different times. Sometimes he'll tour. So he, he's had a rough go at it for a long time with his, with his mental health. Uh, so, to, you know, this is one of the reasons why it's a little more sad um, that he that he passed away because he's had a really, really difficult life. But I want to recommend, because it's a great way to kind of get into his music and to sort of understand who he is as a person, check out the documentary The Devil and Daniel Johnston. It's a really great documentary on top of being a good profile of an interesting artist. All right. Fair. What about you? Uh, so I have, like I said, the the October mood, uh, the, the Halloween spirit has mm-hmm. taken hold of my heart early this year. Getting spooky, um, so wa- getting gloomy. Yeah, and so I wanted something like sort of weird to, to dive into. Um, and a long time ago, I like two or th- no, like three or four years ago, I watched the first season of Twin Peaks. Um, okay. And stopped there. I only saw the first season. Just generally feels a lot longer. There's a lot more sort of establishing stuff going on. Whereas uh, the, I think the second season, 
Lynch sort of gets more Lynchian with himself. Right. Um, yeah. And and that is exactly what I wanted. So I'm <laughs> I think I'm about halfway through the second season now. OK, I'm trying to uh, I want to check out the movie and then hopefully find some way to get access to the, the Showtime series that happened a couple years ago. Um, yeah, I still need to do that as well. I've watched, I think, about the same one and a half seasons. Yeah, I think I got to the place where it is revealed who killed Laura Palmer. And I, you know, uh, legend yeah, I, has it that the show kind of like goes off the rails at that point because um, they, you know, reveal the big mystery that was kind of fueling the show. So then Lynch just kind of goes crazy and you know, does all the you know, weird otherworldly doppelganger stuff he likes to do. Um, uh, I mean, so I, which might yeah. actually age better now than it did at the time. Uh, I think maybe it does. I actually, that's exactly where I'm at. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm definitely intrigued. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it might, uh, age better. Cause I am like all in now. Okay. Uh, and it's not as, and maybe it's because because I'm going back on it some twenty something years later, thirty years later, or whatever. Yeah. Um. It it's not as obtuse as I thought it would be. Um. And I think right. It's, well, it's still know, a TV because, show. Yeah, and it's it's sort of Lynch before the shackles were off. I guess. Yeah, I think um, uh, Fire Walk with Me, the movie is much more sort of in his like film style that we have you now sort of associate with him. Have you seen the movie? No, I have it. Uh, but I wanted to watch the entire series first before I watched the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, I guess the movie's a prequel, which I didn't. Yeah. Know. It's a prequel to the, to the first season, but, uh, or, or it start, it ends where the first season starts. Um, but well, yeah, so, Regardless of of David Lynch being David Lynch, I just want to say that there are some of the best characters and character dynamics in that mm-hmm. show. Uh, like I love the secretary and the, the like, doofy cop. Right. Um, I love I love fucking Kyle MacLachlan. Yeah, I Kyle mean, it makes the show at, literally at his peak. At yeah, peak McLaugh. <laughs> And and I love me some Kyle McLaughlin, so I am just like all about it right now. I I actually think he was sort of robbed a better film career. Uh, yeah, you can blame uh, Showgirls for that, but um, yeah, even though I I think he's one of the few people in that movie who knew what movie he was in. Sure, I, yeah, I mean he seems self aware enough, but yeah, you know he had some cameo, uh, some fun cameos in. Portlandia. Mm-hmm. Uh, he came back for the most recent Showtime. So hopefully we're at the beginning of the McLaughlin's. <laughs> that would be great. He also uh, had a pretty notable character in Sex in the City, which is I don't think a show either of us ever watched. But um, for the people who did oh. watch it, he's very, very well known for that. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. So um, Twin Peaks, real getting into it right now. Great, great. Yeah, perfect time to do it. All right, uh, let's go ahead then and just start talking about some more movie news. We have a few stories that were uh, left over from last week and a couple that have popped up. So we'll start here with this one. 
Um, Richard Kelly, uh, director of Donnie Darko, is trying to get together a Rod Serling biopic. Rod Serling being the creator and one of the head writers of the original Twilight Zone. Um, I don't know that much about Rod Serling's story outside of, like, you know, he had some great fucking TV shows. Yeah. I, well, he, I don't he, know. He was one of the first screenwriters on the original Planet of the Apes, I think. I mean, that went through, okay. like, a few different writers. But I know that he was the one who came up with the big finale with the Statue of Liberty. That was one of the things oh. that survived his draft, which makes that sense, sounds- right? Uh, yeah, totally. That, yeah. I just, I don't know, like, does he have an a interesting super interesting life? life? <laughs> um, or is yeah, it, is you it? know. He's an old TV guy, golden age of Hollywood. Uh, I'm sure there's something there. Now, I, I think the way that the story is kind of being sold, it's like Richard Kelly, Donnie Darko creepy movie with the you know twist ending not unlike something Serling would have thought of Mm -hmm. I think that's the connection right I don't know if that's going to translate as far as what the film would be or if it just happens to be a great pitch I mean I I guess it it makes sense like Twilight Zone uh, fever, I guess, is is pretty hot right now with the the Jordan reboot Peele's reboot series and stuff. So, like the timing of it all makes sense. I just, I, I sure, I'm interested to know more about Richard or uh, Rod Serling as a person. Yeah, um, but never forget that Richard Kelly also gave us Southland Tales, uh, which was weird and not great. It has its fans. There is a Southland Tales fan base out there that's not even necessarily connected to the Donnie Darko fan base. I remember um, I I saw it. Yeah. But that's all I can say about it. Right. Um it has a kind of a cult a cult audience. Um yeah, Richard Kelly's one of those kind of weird one-hit wonders as far as that goes cuz he made Donnie Darko, which wasn't even necessarily a hit. It was kind of a flop, actually, but found life on video and on uh, cable and became like this cult phenomenon. Um, and then, uh, yeah, he made Southland Tales. He made that, that movie The Box with Cameron Diaz. And then yeah. I th- wasn't he a writer on that action movie Domino, I want to say? Uh-huh. I might have just made that up. I don't even know what movie entirely you don't remember domino i think it was in a kira knightley that was in that yeah kira knightley mickey rourke came out in 2005 yeah richard kelly was a screenwriter on that and it was directed by tony scott so Mm. all right so yeah i don't know i'm interested to see if uh you know and i think actually as far as like a way to get back into hollywood's good graces and to separate himself from the donnie darko cult fan base this is a good move uh something that kind of lets him focus in on somebody else something else and uh it's going to bring in a whole different audience who's just interested in seeing something about rod serling uh sort of a biopic audience an older audience probably than is you know the 
late twenty somethings and early thirty somethings who are uh, were obsessed with Donnie Darko. Yeah, like I said, I'm I'm interested. Uh, mm-hmm. I think you know uh, you get the right cast. Um, it could be could be really cool if he hits the right tone. But sure. I don't know. We'll we'll wait. I, I'll wait and see before I give it too much credence. For sure. All right. Uh, what other stories do we have here? Um, looks like oh yeah, this one here. Uh, the Margot Robbie Tank Girl reboot now has a director attached. Miles Joris. Uh, per- uh, do you know how to pronounce his last name? Parafidi. Parafid. Parafite. Parafite. It's definitely a, a foreign name that I can't pronounce. Yeah, uh, sorry for butchering it, Miles. Yes. Miles, Miles Joris Perafite? I don't know. Yeah. So this brings this project closer to a reality. I, have we talked about this before? I don't this remember. It's so familiar to me. Yeah, I, I remember first hearing that there might be a reboot with uh, Margot Robbie, but I don't know if I remember talking about it on the show. Um, it's weird that, like... That someone somewhere said, hey, what if Margot Robbie did a a Tank Girl reboot? And then it's like, you know, the right person in Hollywood says it. And then it's sort of real for a while. Just like the fucking Channing Tatum gambit. Right. And then they're like, oh, but who are we going to get to direct? And oh, who are we going to get to write? Like, maybe get that stuff first and then cast it. (laughs) And then announce it. Well, I mean, you know, it's unfortunately... The way these things kind of develop is it's well. Some, I guess I just I guess I just did it with uh, Adam Sandler, Leonard Cohen. Yeah, uh, uh, Adam Sandler uh, is is cast as Leonard Cohen <laughs> in a project that I have in development. Uh, you heard it here first. It's a scoop. It's a MacGuffin scoop. Uh, yeah, I. So who's Miles Joris Perifit? Uh, that's what I'm trying to find out right now. I'm not sure if he's anything right now. Says Dreamland, As You Are, The Hunter and the Fox, any of those? Uh, none of that is anything I have encountered. I think these are like short films. Uh, Dreamland, I think, is a, is a feature. Um, Margot Robbie's also in that. So that's probably why that they know each other and that just came okay. out this year so so that's all right so you this know, might fairly be, new this might be sort of miles's move yeah uh here's my question do we need a tank girl reboot <laughs> i mean you just said last week that you don't you don't appreciate the do we need framing <laughs> yes that's true very true good call thanks um, I fully, fully backtrack that statement. But my my point is, like, Tank Girl is a weird sort of perfect 90s fever dream. Sure. Uh, I, Like, Tank Girl as a property, like, even the comics, mm-hmm. I mean, I've read some of the comics, and they're fun, mm-hmm. but, like, you know, I'm, I'm a comic book enthusiast, and even... Being in the comics, sometimes Tank Girl can be a little exhausting. Uh, I mean, it definitely has its audience, and I, I'm not saying it's trash or anything, but I'm just like, I I don't know that there's a better Tank Girl movie like it it than the one that exists. 
Yeah, it's just such a weird sort of perfect time capsule movie. I don't know. I just yeah, yeah. No, I mean you know it's 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 extremely 1995. Uh, Lori Petty, who a lot of people probably know more now from Orange Is the New Black, um, yeah. kind of an iconic role for her as far as you know that goes. Um, I think Margot Robbie is inspired casting uh, in the role. I she's a She's borderline getting on overused at this point. Um, yeah, I'm a little afraid she's gonna fast bend soon. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of there with you. Um, but I think that but, this is but just like Michael Fassbender. Uh, so far, she is a delight in everything she's in. She's a, yeah, she's a treat. So I I understand why she's being so exposed. I just uh, after you know. Harley Quinn and Birds of Prey. Yeah. I I think And I would imagine she's probably going to be in the Suicide Squad sequel as well. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Uh I just think Tank Girl is is sort of familiar territory for her interpretation as Harley Quinn, so I don't we'll know. see. I, I mean, I'm sure that that was kind of what launched her in that direction. Um but, you know, she might bring something unique to it or something different or, or you know, something different from what Lori Petty did as, as well. But um, I'm okay with there being another Tank Girl movie, mostly because the original is not that well known. And it's not, I wouldn't say such a great film that it shouldn't be remade. It is a very unique film and is yeah. very of its time. But I think that there's room for a new interpretation, um, one that's maybe less 90s. Um, I guess I guess maybe that's that's it. Is it's just so of its time, it's hard for me to picture a modern version. But to me, this is know. very very similar to like the Judge Dredd movies. You know, like, what? fair enough, fair enough. Nobody oh, would have yeah. seen the Stallone one and thought, you know, there's a movie that definitely needs to be remade. Yeah, fair enough, and it's a, and it's most a, people are not familiar with the comic source or anything. Yeah, and honestly, uh, I think that's a pretty good comparison because, like, e- e- the Judge Dredd comics, I kind of am sort of in the same boat as Tank Girl. Like, they're fun, but... Yeah. And I I love the character Judge Dredd. Um, yeah, I don't know, mate. You know what? You've convinced me. Yeah. So, hopefully, I, don't know, I guess we'll have to see Dreamland at some point and see if uh, this guy's got the chops, but, you know... I I think it's I'm kind of excited actually to see what comes out of it because it's such a weird thing that it is yeah. no matter what it's going to be unique. Well, hopefully, it sounds like there's the people who are attached to it are probably attached to it because uh, they have some sort of attachment to the character or source material uh, that you know because otherwise, where would this come from? Yes, um, so. So hopefully that's the case, and and this could be pretty cool. Uh, Now, we're talking about remakes. Yes. Let's talk about a movie that should not be remade. Okay. Because it is pinnacle cinema. (laughs) Paramount is apparently working on a reboot of the classic starring Nicolas Cage and John Travolta. That's right. They're remaking face off yes and if you've been on twitter in the last few days you haven't been able to escape this meme i 
I am actually unfamiliar with the meme. What I thought you participated in it. Like, basically, people are finding any picture of, like, two people who look similar and saying this is the, the, this is the only face-off remake I want to see. No. Um. No, no, no. No. What I said was something along the lines of Paramount might as well be remaking Lawrence of Arabia. Paramount because that, that's how well high of regard you hold face-off. Casablanca. <laughs> Paramount might as well be remaking fucking Citizen fucking Kane. <laughs> there are some movies in the canon of moviedom okay. that are made to the peak, the pinnacle, the penultimate version already exists. There are some movies that should be untouchable. And Face Off is one of those. Fucking yeah. So there's actually... Uh, it's actually kind of interesting because... So, Face Off is directed by John Woo, and it was one of his first big American films after having a pretty... His best? Oh, you know, arguably. I don't know. Depending on who you are. Um, I would say no. But, you know, he made some films, Hard Boiled, uh, uh, The Killer, etc., in Hong Kong, which kind of crossed over here. Then he started making a couple films in the U.S., uh, including Face Off. And Face Off was actually the original inspiration for the uh, the Hong Kong film, the film that right. The Departed was based on. Uh, Internal Affairs. Infernal Affairs. Infer- Infernal, Infernal Affairs, Affairs yes. Um, that was the inspiration for that movie, because in, you know, in, in the story of that is that, um, uh, you know, two police officers are moles in, or one a police officer is a mole in the in the uh, crime world, and there's a criminal as a mole in the police world, and that was sort of sort of the dynamics of uh, Face Off is what inspired that. Then that gets remade in the U.S. as Martin Scorsese's The Departed, which wins Best Picture. So a movie that is indirectly a remake of Face Off won Best Picture. It stole its Oscar. <laughs> I just think that entire lineage is face is, off is really interesting and funny. It's a perfect movie. It is it is peak Nicolas Cage. It's before he goes so crazy he's unwatchable. Uh-huh. Uh but post sort it's like later in his sort of uh 90s action phase. Yeah, this is right sort of it's, in it's, the middle of there. Like, the, the movies like The Rock and Con Air and stuff. I, I think The Rock was first. I'm, I'm pretty sure. But regardless, uh, so Nicolas Cage is so hot with that action movie juice. And same with John Travolta. He's sort of post-Pulp Fiction, doesn't really know what to do with his career. So he's in a bunch of these sort mm-hmm. of... Uh, shitty action movies like, but people are just sending him scripts like crazy at this point. So he's just kind of saying yeah. yes to everything because he doesn't know if and he'll then, be able to work for much longer. So it, that's how he ends up sure. in movies like Broken Arrow or whatever. And it's it's sort of his uh, second come down uh, for his career. Yeah, we'll see if he has a, a third resurgence. I think um, he's had more than two at this point. Well, I mean, like uh, like stardom a list. Sure. I, I think yeah, I would say around this time of, of face off ninety five or whatever it was, um, he was hot again. It it is just it is it is uh, 
sort of 90s action stars, uh, you know, star directors, star actors, yeah. at the, the height of their powers. You got so many doves flying through this fucking movie. <laughs> uh, it, it's got just enough of the worst 90s CGI when they cut off the face. Not enough to ruin the movie, but just enough for you to go, ooh, that's bad CGI. This is a perfect fucking movie and has no business being remade. I am legitimately upset about it. You object. Hard pass. Okay. Sir. Um okay, I I have less strong feelings about it uh, one way or the other. I don't think it is a remake that is going to garner a lot of attention because I I don't it's it's very conceptual obviously. But one of the reasons why the original worked is because of the cast and because of the fact that it was made during a time when star vehicles was still a thing. So people went to see John Travolta act like Nicolas Cage and Nicolas Cage act like John Travolta. That's why you went to the movie. Um, I don't think in an action movie context, there's two actors that really are going to um, excite people in the same way. No, you're probably going to have fucking... Kevin Hart and The Rock. Oh, you think they'll go like, full uh, action comedy with it? I kind of. Like, it's kind of a joke that hurts me. Uh, people don't take this movie seriously enough. <laughs> uh, and and I, I, I don't think anybody... Ha- I don't know who has the clout to play Caster Troy in this day and age. I don't either. Yeah, yeah I... I I, I think this whole I think it sounds sort of like a direct to I guess streaming mm-hmm. since direct to DVD doesn't really exist anymore. Um, yeah, I mean it don't, might don't. do a little bit more business than that. Like it might uh, have a like a February release date and then nobody sees it and then they forgot it happened. That's kind of well in, the face that I see. Unless they could get the right stars attached like but i don't know who that would be I, the only way i would be interested in this is if they try to out ridiculous the first one if it's if they literally just get like fucking keanu reeves and tom cruise and they have to out stunt the fuck out of each other see i don't think uh, it would I work with two actors that come from the same era as as John Travolta and Nicolas Cage. I think it has to be two modern actors, two modern action actors. I don't think think there's modern action actors like that anymore. No, there isn't because those because Nicolas Cage and and John Travolta are not strictly action actors, and that was the era when you had serious actors doing very unserious movies. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like unless. They go full-on action stunt porn craziness to blow this shit out of the water. Yeah. Uh, I just, I can't see it myself being interested in this at all. Yes. Um, okay, so that's that. That's the movie news. But let's go ahead and start discussing It, Chapter 2, and I will let you set that up. What happens in this installment of Stephen King's It? Uh, okay, so director Andy Muschietti mm-hmm. returns um, to a, a direct sequel to It. Um, 
27 years after the Losers Club uh, encounters the the murder clown, um, and uh, some weird stuff starts happening in Derry once again. Some uh, murders with uh, you know suspicious clues left behind. Uh, the only member of the gang who still lives in Derry is uh, Mike. Uh, he he's sort of following these crimes as they happen. He re- he realizes very quickly what's going on and reaches out to everyone else who has moved out of Derry, moved on with their lives. He gives them a call. They can't remember exactly why they all agreed to meet up again, um, because as you leave Derry, your your memory of the trauma that you've experienced sort of leaves with you, and just you know, sort of growing up. You move past it. Right. Um, but as they return back to town, weird stuff starts happening to them as well. And they quickly remember everything that happened with Pennywise. Pennywise is back. Pennywise, the shape-shifting fear clown uh, that eats children. Uh-huh. Um, and this time, he he seems to be fucking with them. Um as they try to figure out a solution to permanently, permanently kill Pennywise this time. Uh, yes. To, to, to defeat him for good. So what did you think of the second installment of It? Okay, so the last time we talked about this movie, which is or the last time we talked about the first half of the, this uh, pair of films... Um, you know, we did. I, I discussed a little bit about sort of the structure of the story and how it differs from the book, or even to some extent, the original 1991 uh, or 1990 um, TV miniseries starring Tim Curry. Is there's a the structure uh, kind of goes back and forth, right? So they're called as adults to, to come back to Derry, at which point they start to, as their memories are coming back, it goes into chapter and reveals those scenes of them as kids and interslices them with the scenes of them as adults. And then, you know, we get both encounters sort of simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something, you know, sort of sprawling and epic about that structure. And, it's you know, it's a 1,200-page book and it's... It's a tome, and it's a somewhat difficult read as far as that goes. Uh, but in that sort of like populist page turner, uh, Stephen King sort of way, and I, th- I think it's been a struggle for this series to know how to retell the story, um, especially in two parts, uh, and to um, know what to what to keep in the story and what to leave out and what needs to be changed and what needs to be sort of truncated to, to make it watchable. Now, one thing that differs from this, from the original is because the original was this huge smash success. Um, there is clearly a bigger budget in this one. Um, there is also, uh, a longer run time. So we're, coming pretty close to three hours here. I think it's uh, two hours and 40-something. The original, I think, was uh, hanging out around two hours, maybe a little over. And so, theoretically, the movie should be able to breathe a little bit more, should be able to include a little bit more from the book if they wanted to, and uh, uh, explore different types of scares and whatever. Um, 
And one of the ways they decide to use the runtime is they all, they do include more flashbacks from when the kids were, or when the Losers Club were kids. So we return yes. back to the original cast as well of Finn Wolfhard and, and, uh, you know, all, all, all the kids. Um, yes. Structurally speaking, this is, uh, this installment in particular is a, a little bit closer to, the miniseries structure or the book structure because right. it starts out with them as adults and you do get these flashbacks of their yeah. summer as children. You get sort of stuff that was uh, left out of the previous version, which which is interesting to me because I think uh, in our review previous, we kind of mentioned that it sort of felt like stuff was missing um, yes. from, the, from that first part. And, it, you know, it turns out it was because it's a lot of that stuff is in here. Yes, and uh, and some of it was reshoots, and some of it might have been shot for the original film. I don't know exactly, um, but yeah. So that's some. It's, it's something that the movie decides to do, and they kind of bring attention to it. I have bigger problems with this half than I do the first one, um, but they are problems that I think were hinted at with with uh, it chapter one. You know, things that were just kind of like nagging at me as I was watching. It's like, well, you know, basically it works and it's a, it's a decent like coming of age horror film. But, um, yeah, structurally there's some, some weird stuff and it's a little episodic and uh, the scare could have been done a little better. Da, da, da. Things I was thinking while watching the original, um, or the first one, I should say, uh, that are much more pronounced in this one than now I, you know, very much realize that the writer and director, these are problems that they have and that they, uh, even when given more runtime and bigger budget, they run directly into. And yeah, I, uh, I think that the, the movie considering that it's almost three hours long, we don't get to know the characters as well as I would like. Um, we have a really great cast here, you know, Bill Hader and Jessica Chastain and, and James McAvoy, um, among others. And they're all really, you know, doing interesting performances, but I feel like the performances and the characterizations are so rote into the action of the screenplay. Like, I feel like the only reason the characters make choices is because the screenplay says so. I, I never feel like they're fully realized three-dimensional human beings in this movie. Um, and every scene and sequence, even when they're just kind of hanging out and like talking to each other, um, it feels like they're just on a conveyor belt to get from point A to the story to point B to the story. Uh, so I, interesting. Yeah. So I feel I, I actually, I actually didn't feel that way. Um, I I felt like t- to me the characters are sort of the strongest thing about this version of, of the movie. Uh, to, so to me, this feels very much like a second part uh, to a, another movie. Like, I feel like yes. this version isn't complete. And I feel that I did feel that a little bit in the first one. Not as much as this, though. Right. Because um, I think the first one has a more compelling emotional arc than this one does. And I think actually... The problem well, I that I that I was just outlining why? with the adult cast, I don't really feel that in the, with the with the child cast. I actually feel like those kids, when they're hanging out together, when they're you know f- experiencing the horror stuff, um, 
some of which works better than others, but I think that I believe those kids as those characters, whereas this, I just feel like I'm looking at actors. Interesting. Yeah, I, I actually, I think, to me, personally, one of the strong points is the the actors, the cast, and their performances. I felt, uh, I really enjoyed uh, their characters, and, and I felt like their a lot of their interactions, um, it, I will say, okay, so my big problem with this movie mm-hmm. uh, is the middle section is really, gets really formulaic and really predictable. And, um, yeah, kind of choppy. Yeah, and and the scares are there's I think there's fewer scares in this one mm-hmm. um, because to me I felt like the focus was more on the characters. Um, uh, so actually, I, I, I felt- don't know if I agree with that. I feel like the movie, especially towards the middle half, is really just kind of going from one horror set piece to another to one well, uh, Jack in the Box jump scare I- to another. I will agree to you that 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 is a, a huge chunk in the middle of the movie is is yeah. that. But I feel like uh, the introduction uh, the introduction feels a little rushed. Mm-hmm. Um, then I feel like once we get to the ending, um, the conclusion was really satisfying for me. Uh, my 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 big problem is just how sort of formulaic the scare sets up setups get to be. Like yes. the characters are hanging out, and I'm really into it. And then all of a sudden, they're sort of thrown on these individual quests. Yes. And I'm like, oh, that's that's a bummer, because to me, what's fun is seeing these characters interact, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, that's that's where the juice is. But instead, we're cut away from that for these quests that the first couple of them work, but then, you know, by the time we get to three or four characters in, it's like, okay, well, I know Pennywise is going to jump out and scare him but i didn't feel that these characters were in any real peril up until the ending um this is actually very similar to the to the issue i had with scary stories to tell in the dark because the movie plots it out and telegraphs it ahead of time it says this is the way this is going to work and we're going to go from one character to another and then it builds in this kind of safe safe rhythmic pattern and you just yeah. go from – it's like literally being in a spook house where you just go from one thing to another. Yeah, and the, the end result is the scares feel hollow. They feel yeah. cheap. And I think that there's a couple reasons why it was plotted out that way. One is because they wanted to fit in as much scares as possible or as many scares as mm-hmm. possible. And I think the other reason is because basically this is a blockbuster now. The movie made so much money – that they stopped thinking about it in terms of being a horror film. I mean, other than the aesthetics. Like, they're like, well, we got a scary clown that eats people. It's going to be R-rated. That's enough to make it qualified as a horror film. But we also want to have, now that we have a bunch of people in the audience, and it's a more diverse audience, not just a horror audience, well, we better punch it up with a lot of jokes and a lot of one-liners, and and we don't want people to get too scared, so let's kind of uh, make it a little bit more formulaic in these places and a little bit more crowd-pleasing in this places, and then we're going to end in a big CGI boss battle. And at that point, when we get to the end, which you said was really satisfying, for me less so, um, I felt, okay, this is just spectacle this isn't even they're not even going for horror right now i i actually disagree with that because that's that that is when i i mean 
they are following the pattern of the book, and I think uh, that's sort of a problem in and of itself. Is mm-hmm. uh, I think they try to shove too much from the book in, um, and I think some of that could have hit the cutting room floor. Um, but the ending was like the only time that I felt like any of these characters were actually in danger. So to me, the scares were more effective. Uh, and I think there was some good um, thematic work done with like what what sort of deeper behind some of these scares that these uh, characters are experiencing. I think uh, there's like a... a chunk of this movie like there's a there's pretty much from the scene where mcavoy's at the carnival mm-hmm. on, to me was really effective and I, and i really enjoyed um everything sort of between them meeting at the restaurant and mm-hmm. that feels bloated and choppy and formulaic and i think if that had been trimmed down uh and paced better uh I think you would feel that a lot less. Yeah, I mean, it certainly doesn't need to be as long as it is, given the way they decided to tell the story. Because it's not like the story breathes any better than the first one. It's not that it actually breathes less. Um, And it's not like I feel like we're really lived in in this town and these characters and all this this stuff. It never, like, feels more real or... um, you know, treated with any more attention than anything else. It just feels like more stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'll agree with that. Well, I was going to say, however, I really like some of the cast. Yes. Uh, some of, you know, some of them were okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they did a great job of casting adults who look like their younger counterparts sure. and who can act like them. Uh, after I had just watched, x-men dark phoenix it was nice to see james mcavoy trying again (laughs) yeah Um, and and i think the the big standout for this version uh is obviously bill Hader. he's so fucking good he steals the whole movie uh yeah which between this and barry he Mm -hmm. is like he's i'm excited to see everything he does in the future i was a fan before yeah from snl but um yeah he he is the heart of this movie entirely yeah and has the i think the best uh character arc that's dealt with it with the most subtlety right i i would agree with that and i think that he um he also uh embodies his character with more confidence than a lot of the rest of the cast i think he's not given as you know, uh, any more to do than the others. But I do think that he can do more with less than some of the others. Um, yeah. And I think that might come yeah, from I, his I work agree. in comedy and his work in improv and that kind of stuff, like, lends to to what he's doing in this movie. Um, but, yeah, I think he does steal the show. I also think that's kind of a problem, though, because uh, it, the movie, the heart of the movie should be James McAvoy. It should, it, he is the the Bill Dembro character who was the lead of the original and mm-hmm. it's his story basically, but the movie, you know, maybe in editing or whatever sort of realizes he's not near as interesting and it sort of shifts to becoming Richie's story, which is incongruent with the whole thing. 
I don't. I don't think that's necessary. <laughs> yeah, I. I can see what it's satisfying as a viewer, just as a fan of 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 uh, Bill Hader, and I enjoy watching him in the movie, and he's giving a good performance. But when I think about it in movie terms, I'm I see it as a problem. I am very curious to watch this with the first one, mm-hmm. um, because to me this feels very much like a part two. Like, yeah, I think the first one stands on its own pretty well. I think this one, I I uh, might stand a little bit better watching it with the the first one. And apparently, I I don't know. This might just be a rumor, but apparently there is like more footage that they're going to release as like a mini series on HBO. That's sort of like the new thing. Uh, that sounds that like a rumor to me. I don't I don't think that's necessarily that the case. I have heard some people talk I, about I, like a supercut between the two films and i honestly i think that would probably be the like there's probably an edit if you took both films made a four-hour cut um yeah and and yeah. be able to shift back and forth the way that the book does that i think would be more effective i still think there's problems with directing i still think there's problems um with the writing uh and and you know ultimately it's okay is a, you know, just like a middle of the road sort of mainstream horror film. It's, it's about as good as like your average Bloomhouse chiller. Uh, but I mean, even if you're looking at those, I think like James Wan probably could have done more with this material. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm not super satisfied by this one in particular and sort of retroactively the first one either. I think it ended up kind of just being, about what your average moviegoer would expect from a movie about a murderous clown. I don't know. I still think that there's enough here with the source mythi- material. Uh, I do think it it has some problems. Um, I actually think that, yeah, maybe a, a supercut of both movies together would probably be sort of the ideal version of this. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I still... I still really liked the first one. Um, I I think the the look and the feel of it feels right. I like the first and one better. One t- and to me, this this one does feel like a, a continuation of that. It just it's not as satisfying. But in general, I still I still liked it quite a bit. Uh, it's definitely flawed, um, but I. You know, I just really uh, I I do appreciate that they did sort of dive pretty deep into King's mythology right. because it's pretty rich. Yeah, I mean, um, they don't go full on Space Turtle, but they do uh, They do I mean, talk a little bit about um, sort of the more Lovecraftian angle and sort of the alien angle to the creature and that sort of stuff. There's, a, there's subtle hints to the Space Turtle, Cassidy. <laughs> don't knock the Space Turtle. Blink and you'll miss it, but uh, yeah. Uh, overall, I... I do think that this one was a little bit of a disappointment compared to the first one. Mm -hmm. Um, But to me, it still delivered everything I wanted. It has some, this one has some of my favorite scares. Um, I I think out of context, uh, they work really well. Like I think, you know, the, the one with the girl under the bleachers, I think is like the best Pennywise scene to on film to date. Um, Even though, uh, 
uh, Bill Skarsgård, is that his name? Bill Skarsgård is kind mm-hmm. of doing Winnie the Pooh's voice for some reason. Um, uh, he kind of, yeah, I guess a little less than the first one. But, <laughs> but I love that. Uh, he kind of had that. I love that sequence. And to me, that's actually like the type of atmosphere I wish the rest of the movie had. Because a lot of times when they go into the scare moments, he reaches a point where it's enough, and then he's like, but let's go a little bit more, and then it's this big ooga-booga-booga CGI thing running around. Yeah, there's definitely a couple moments of that, but I I don't know. O- overall, I think a more restrained version probably would have been better. Mm-hmm. Um, h- however, I, I was still very... Uh, I just... I fucking love Pennywise so much. Um, and I love the mythology so much. Yeah, and and I think that they they did a pretty good job with the characters. Um, to me, that's actually where a lot of this movie shines. Obviously, some less than others. Um, I mean, it's hard. You know, me, you have a lot of characters, and it's uh, you know, it, it's a tough. Balance yeah, I mean, this is not easy to do. I wouldn't say this is like Stephen King's Watchmen or anything, but I, and I think it is filmable, but. Yeah, there's a lot to juggle here, and it's it's difficult to know what to keep and what to cut and how you're going to balance these things. I still ultimately kind of wish I we had gotten Kerry Fukunaga's uh, version of this. Oh yeah, mm. but yeah, uh, I, kinda, I mean, I, that's hard to that's hard to disagree with. <laughs> um, but ultimately, I was satisfied, and uh, and I think a tighter edit in the middle could have made it this just as good as the first one. But I, I think it's a, a comparable companion piece. Yeah, no, I, I think obviously like the average like mall audience or whatever oh, who it, it, who enjoyed the first one are they're going to to like this one enough. I just have issues with and it. And I think it has I I just think it has such a, a fun I want I want a return of the charismatic boogeyman. Yeah. Um, of the the high concept, weird as fuck, but ultimately terrifying uh, villain, and to me, Pennywise embodies that. Um, anyway, so what uh, what letter grade do you give this? I I think I probably give it a. I think I give this one a B minus. Okay, yeah, I'm feeling like a a, a, a C plus on it. Okay, yeah, all right, fair enough. Cool. Let's move on from it and move on to the Netflix homework. Uh, Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond. Cassidy, why don't you set this one up? All right. So, and I want to say, when did Man on the Moon come out? 1998? 99. 99. Um, Jim Carrey starred in a film directed by Milos Forman called Man on the Moon, which was a biopic about uh, 70s comedian Andy Kaufman. Uh, Andy Kaufman was kind of this uh, alt comedian before the word alt comedy was really considered. Um, he was uh, sort of like one of the original trolls. Um, he, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he would he would go uh, get these parts and go on stage and do these antics, and he was always kind of second guessing his audience and always sort of trying to trick them. Um, and you never knew quite what was performance and what was performance art and what was a real actual like awkward happening that you just happened to be at. Um, and he always wanted people to kind of second guess everything. Um, you know, sort of a iconoclast genius in that sort of way. I uh, died before mm-hmm. his time. 
And uh, yeah, so they made this movie about it in 1999. And and this was at sort of the height of Jim Carrey's popularity where he could land a role like this. And, uh, you know, he had to kind of work for it because I think Jim Carrey at that time was very much known as still sort of as the Ace Ventura type. Um, and people were just getting around to the idea of taking him seriously. He gets this role. And what we find out through this documentary is that uh, Andy Kaufman's old girlfriend shot a B-roll on the entire production while Jim Carrey was playing this role. And what we learned from Jim Carrey, who is primarily the main talking head of the documentary, is that he sort of embodied Andy Kaufman in a very serious way. Like there's method acting and then there's what happened here where, um, you know, whether he was Andy Kaufman or Andy Kaufman's alter ego, Tony Clifton, um, he would never be out of character would, you know, wouldn't let anyone on cast refer to him as Jim or anything like that. Basically Jim Carrey uh, as Andy Kaufman was playing these pranks and tricks on the cast and crew of this movie the entire time in character and was essentially inconsolable. So yeah, that's 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 pretty much the movie. Um, they kind of uh, show a lot of this B real B uh, footage that was shot during the time of the movie, and they sort of uh, talk about it in conjunction with um, Jim Carrey's career and uh, you know Andy Kaufman as a personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. This movie is tricky yeah (laughs) uh so so first of all i want to go on record and say that i'm not a huge fan of method acting me either Um, and i think that actors can get pretty fucking pretentious and in some cases possibly even damage their own mental health um, when they dive too deep into uh, a role, mm-hmm. I think that might be the case here. Um, I I don't think Jim Carrey was really known as being like, you know, like a method actor until this. Um, yes, I, like I don't think that he was on set of The Mask and making everybody call him Stanley Butkus. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, no, but he so he I, does make an interesting point in the in his in the uh, the documentary when they're interviewing him that he talks about when he was a kid or when he was starting in comedy rather that he mm-hmm. found the best way to sort of achieve um, you know satisfaction or to to achieve the type of entertainment that he wanted to be known for was to sort of let go and let this sort of Jim Carrey character, what we think of as like, you know, the wild, crazy um, Jim Carrey sort of just take over. And he did see it as sort of a a disassociative thing. And as a comedian, um, you know, performing live on stage, I totally understand that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And to me, like when I'm performing, that's what separates a good performance from a bad performance is, you know, if I'm, when I'm aware that I'm performing, not that I'm unaware, but if I'm ever thinking about yeah. it, then it's it's sort of death. Um, and so I can understand 
approaching it from that angle um, uh, as an actor, but I think you know there there's a huge difference between film acting and and you know performing on stage, sure, in front of a, a live audience. Um, because film acting, I do also, and maybe a lot of people don't realize this, but film acting um, or any kind of like television or anything like that is the the you know the amount of time that's spent for an actor mm-hmm. on set maybe 5% of it is actually acting the rest of it is waiting <laughs> and sitting in your trailer and getting makeup and you know waiting for a shot to be set up or doing test I mean, costume testing that kind of stuff like it it's long periods of time where you're just kind of hanging out by craft service before they set up a shot and then you you know you might run a scene uh five to twenty times yeah yeah uh i I mean yes it's it's very different beast and and part of it is that is like when you do a scene you're doing it over and over and over five to twenty times like and when you have an actor who is you know sort of not participating in that process yeah. uh in the, in the most professional way i can see how that would be extremely frustrating um and exhausting how however i also think that when you're dealing with portraying a character like andy kaufman it also makes a lot of fucking sense um sure <laughs> uh i i think that this documentary in and of itself is exactly what Andy Kaufman would have wanted um, because you don't know how much of it is sort of real or how much of it might be an act or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that Jim Carrey's like acting or making any of this up, um, but you sort of don't have any real idea of how, how problematic it may or may not have been because the documentary portrays it like, how did they even get this thing done? Right. Like uh, every day was chaos. Which if you yeah, actually whereas, see the movie itself, Man on the Moon, it's a pretty straightforward biopic. The movie does not, I, I don't think, really reflect that kind of production chaos at all. It's a very, very standard traditional movie. It's, I, yes. It's, I mean, it's one of my favorite biopics of all time. And, and probably it's done very my well. favorite, yeah. Jim uh, and probably my favorite Jim Carrey performance. Um, I yeah, I think that this documentary is sort of more in the spirit of what Andy Kaufman would have wanted right. from a movie about him. And that and they, what's interesting is they kind of Jim Carrey also brings that point up, and that's sort of why they're filming this behind the scene footage mm-hmm. uh, is because it feels more true to the spirit of of who Andy was as a person to see him interacting with these people and doing these sort of Andy Kaufman stunts and and tricking people and playing pranks and and goof em ups and stuff right. uh yeah so it's it's sort of uh like the whole uh playboy ranch uh bunny ranch story right right it was really fun and uh in like totally what Andy Kaufman would have done, like, uh, so in that sense, you know, I loved seeing uh, Andy Dick's reaction 
to uh, <laughs> yeah. what he perceived if as that's Jim, Jim Carrey. Car- he is the greatest actor <laughs> of all time. And I hate him. There is no way that's Jim Carrey. Yeah, which is funny because actually, you know, Andy Dick is probably more uh, spiritually he, aligned with, with Andy Kaufman than Jim Carrey is as far as performance yeah. style. Jim Carrey uh, is always more of an impersonation guy. He's always more of a character guy. And he even says... Yeah, and a people he, pleaser. But he also... Yeah, and he talks about that in the movie, which I which I think is interesting. But yeah, uh, Andy, er, Andy Dick is much more of a reactionist. Kind of, uh, yeah, much chaotic of a, individual. Uh, yeah, and, and because of that, uh, people like Andy Dick uh, and Andy Kaufman... Not everybody likes to work with them right. all of the time because it's not the most professional atmosphere. And so it is, it is interesting to see a, a star at the peak of his stardom mm-hmm. um, behaving in the, it, it, with this behavior that could be career-ending yeah. if somebody takes the joke wrong or or files a complaint or decides to sue the studio or whatever. So that aspect of it to me was fascinating. Yeah. I mean, overall, I thought this was a fascinating movie, and and I think, and it's fun to you know sort of relive the careers of of two of my favorite comedians. Sure. However, you know, I could see someone watching this movie and being like, "There's no fucking way I ever want to work with Jim Carrey. He's lost his goddamn mind." <laughs> um, and, and that sort of unfortunately seems to be Jim Carrey's trajectory as he. Instead of, you know, being a, a populist comedian anymore, he seems more content with the role of a bearded shaman hermit. Well, he's in that show, Kindness, Which, you know, I think it's called. Is that what it's called? The new uh, show where he plays like a child's television host? Oh, yeah, that's directed by Michelle Gondry. Yeah, I hear, I hear good things about it. I hear good things, too. Um, and, and I think, you know, uh, it's probably worth watching. I like... I mean, I enjoy Jim Carrey, and I think he's best. He's uh, a when he's political sort of satirist on Twitter Jim- now, doing like weird art with uh, with sharpie markers. Yeah, yeah, uh, he paints too. Mm-hmm. He does a, a bunch of paintings. I actually um, think he's but I, a really I, kind of. I mean, I've always been a fan because I was exactly the right age to be a fan of Jim Carrey in the nineties. Um, yeah, but I was also I I I th- I've liked to watch his career develop, and I think you know. Man on the Moon, um, and maybe even to a bigger extent, The Truman Show, which they talk a lot about in this movie, um, Mm -hmm. were this huge turning point uh, for where he would go as a as a as an actor. And um, even though he would, you know, make like Mr. Popper's Penguins or whatever, after that point, there was sort of no turning back from looking at what he's capable of, and then like you know going to do Bruce Almighty, it's a little, you know, a little difficult to, like, think of him in, in terms of just, like, the goofy guy. Yeah, and, and honestly, I think his best performances come from that place where he's sort of in between, where mm-hmm. he's uh, not entirely dramatic, but also not entirely, uh, you, you know, when he's not talking out of his ass. Right. Literally. I mean, I think he's good at both, but I think that, uh, I think... What this movie really did for me more than just like, you know, oh, this is like, you know, the crazy method actor and like these wild stories on set and that kind of stuff, which is sort of the surface level. Um, 
I, I see this much more as a portrait of Jim Carrey at a, at a time in his career where he was the most popular thing um, out there and he had, you know. Yeah, he was the, I mean, he was the biggest comedy star on the planet. Yes. And, and here he is embodying, you know, a very different kind of comedian, um, but one that he mm-hmm. identifies with in this weird way. And I think that he allowed for various different reasons, you know probably some sort of anxiety about how famous he had become and about, you know, the trajectory of his career and feeling like he had no control over it to absolute. I think there was a certain element of self-sabotage in this entire project. And I think that, yeah, there might've been. And I think that he was kind of allowing the spirit of Andy Kaufman of, you know, the ultimate troll to just say, fuck always being a people pleaser. And fuck um, always allowing the studios to sort of uh, pigeonhole me as this one thing. And I'm, now I'm going to make a big mainstream movie about somebody who wasn't well-liked, and I'm not going to be well-liked while doing it. Uh, yeah, yeah. And and some and someone who... I mean, he might see it as like uh, actually being possessed by the real spirit of Andy Kaufman and whatever. We can talk about that, but I th- I, I see it more as a as basically this part of himself that was just like I'm coming out now. Yeah, in an outlet. Yeah, uh, to to vent everything he was feeling about show business. <laughs> totally. I I mean, no matter how you look at it, whether and you can debate Jim Carrey's state of mind. We could debate it all night long, but, you know, the only one who ultimately knows is Jim Carrey. Yeah. Maybe his therapist, um, who, God willing, he has one. <laughs> um, yeah, ultimately, I, I thought this documentary was really just a fascinating watch. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it doesn't hurt that, again, these are two of my favorite comedians of all time. And just, like, getting sort of an insight into that psyche. Mm-hmm. Uh it was a, uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a really entertaining documentary. Yeah, totally. It's, I mean, you know, it has all this archival footage of uh, Jim Carrey, you know, it, during filming and then stuff from the actual movie and, uh, uh, you know, archive footage of his earlier movies and, and same with Andy Kaufman who, you know, he was a comedian before, before being in TVs and movies meant uh, uh, what's the sort of the only definition of success? Right. Uh, we're sort of entering a time more similar to that in comedy now, where sort of everybody has a platform, so there, yeah, there aren't any comedy like blockbuster stars. So Jim Carrey, you know, he had that at a very unique point in comedy history uh, that not everybody can relate to. Not everybody. Even the biggest stars right now aren't Jim Carrey level. No, in comedy, no. You might be able to say uh, like a Ryan Reynolds or a Kevin Hart or something like that, but even then, it's not. But but they're also Seth Rogen, maybe stream actors. They're they're not straight straight up comedians. Whereas you know that's how Jim Carrey got his start at the comedy store. He started as a as a stand up as an impressionist. Yeah, he started in sketch comedy. And that career trajectory to reach that level of fame just doesn't really exist anymore. Um, so that aspect of it is fascinating and, and entertaining. Yeah. Um, 
yeah o- overall i i think if you're a comedy nerd um and if you have any sort of feelings of nostalgia for Jim Carrey, uh-huh. this is definitely uh, one to watch, but could also be a little concerning. Okay, so what did you have for us next week as far as the Netflix homework goes? Uh, I am assigning to you uh, the, I think it was 2018 or 2017 Netflix original directed by Duncan Jones called Mute, uh, starring Paul Rudd. Um, All right. Yeah, that one's a sci-fi thriller. Uh, it's been sort of on my back burner for a while. I'm excited to, f- to finally watch it. Uh, I hope our listeners watch it as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I want to remind our listeners to rate us on iTunes. I forgot to mention this at the top of the episode. Uh, to please give us a five-star rating. We're shooting for Rotten Tomatoes verification. Share Yes, please do that. And, and and more so than anything, and, you know, all kidding aside, um, we just appreciate when you share the show. So, you know, whether yeah. it's on Twitter and you just hit that retweet button, um, you know, maybe maybe uh, retweet with comment like, hey, this is a podcast I really like to listen to. Or if you're just sharing it or on. I really liked or I really liked this episode. Right. You know, I, uh, or I, I can't wait to hear what they say about this or whatever. Yeah. Uh, that really helps us a lot. Word of mouth, out, even if, if, than, you know, if you're talking about podcasts with friends, just be sure to drop a drop a mention on us. But um, uh, if you had anything, any opinions about the things we talked about today, you can also email us at uh, mcguffinpod at gmail Follow us on Twitter we'll if you're not doing it, it already at mcguffinpod and um, on Instagram at mcguffinpod. Um, we have a Facebook page uh, where we post all of our news stories and episodes when they go up, as well as like surveys and questions we ask to our listeners. Um, you can participate there at uh, facebook.com slash MacGuffinPod. And also uh, check out the, um, the writing I've done over at their website, MacGuff.in slash author slash Cassidy. While you're there, you can also check out the RSS feed for this very podcast and read the other articles and reviews by the rest of the MacGuffin staff over in Seattle. You can also read the uh, reviews that I do weekly for the Idaho State Journal at the Idaho State Journal's website under their arts and entertainment section slash movies or whatever it is. Keith, what is your stuff? Uh, you can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. I feel like, especially lately, I've been a pretty good fucking follow. <laughs> And you check out my website, www.keithfosterkid.com. And I'm working on something new oh. that I'm very excited about that is still in the larval stage. Okay. So I can't tell you too many details about it yet. Um, but trust me, uh, once I can share more, once I have more to share, I will. Uh, but I am very fucking excited about it and if you are a fan of me and my comedy um i think you should be very fucking excited too very Uh, cool i'm working on something really cool so uh keep your eyes peeled and uh follow me on all the socials uh and check out my website because i will uh post updates once i have some to share nice um be sure to check out our friends out there who make the podcast of their own including Patrick and Dennis over at Almost Educational. Um, Patrick has also talked about doing another podcast. Uh, I just heard about that. I don't know when or when that's going to happen, but we'll keep you informed when when and if that does. Um, 
And also be sure to check out uh, uh, Those Happy Places and Rogue Fun, a Star Wars podcast. Um, That should be it for this week. Beep, beep, Richie.